My name is Dr. Kara Radzak, an assistant professor at the School of Integrated Health Sciences at UNLV and the host of Jack Chat. The purpose of today's event is to provide an open forum for athletic trainers and other healthcare professionals to ask questions and discuss the recently published manuscript, Tandem Gate Test Retest Reliability Among Healthy Child and Adolescent Athletes, which is currently available online first from the Journal of Athletic Training. Today, I'm joined by the lead author on the manuscript, Dr. David Howe. David Howe is the lead researcher at Children's Hospital Colorado Sports Medicine Center and assistant professor of orthopedics at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. He received his PhD in 2014 from the University of Oregon and completed a postdoctoral research at Boston Children's Hospital in 2017. He's the recipient of the 2015 NATA Foundation Dissertation Award and the 2019 NATA Foundation's New Investigator Award. In order to make Jack Chat work as smoothly as possible, we ask that you submit your questions in the Facebook Live comment section or as a tweet at JAT underscore NATA using the hashtag, hashtag Jack Chat, all one word. At this point in time, I would like to introduce David. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks so much. It's, it's a pleasure to be here to be able to talk about some of this kind of stuff. And, and thanks to the Journal of Athletic Training for supporting this kind of work to, to um, you know, interface with different professionals from different settings about what research is going on. So to start off, what sparked your interest in Tandem Gate? What was the impetus for this manuscript? That's a really good question. So. Uh, you know, as a part of my my work, as you mentioned at the University of Oregon, really started off trying to understand um, uh, concussion assessment. How do we objectively determine whether or not somebody um, has recovered from a concussion? Quite honestly, a lot of that started back when I was doing clinical athletic training. As far as my own interests go, I was interested in um, you know how, the the tests that we use may may not have a high level of objectivity um, and don't fully assess kind of the, the full nature of what a concussion is. And so uh, through the work that I did there, we, we worked in a motion analysis laboratory. So, um, you know, some pretty highly accurate measures where we were able to measure, you know, um, within a millimeter of accuracy, how much uh, the center of mass of an individual moves uh, during a gait cycle, for example. And that's I think very interesting for those of us that have a strong biomechanics interest, uh, but to a lot of clinicians, um, you know, uh, whether or not somebody deviates three versus four and a half millimeters or centimeters or, uh, you know, during a gait cycle um, probably doesn't have a whole lot of clinical value. And, um, you know, what we found was, I think, interesting that we continue to identify that there were deficits following a concussion um, among adolescents, but, uh they continue to last longer than something like symptom durations. We see these kind of prolonged deficits. And, uh, you know, from there, we kind of said, okay, we think that we're onto something that, that there may be these uh, kind of what I've heard termed subclinical deficits. So there's something still going on when people are cleared to return to play. Um, the challenge with that was, you know, how many high school athletic trainers do you know that, that have access to a motion analysis laboratory? There's not a high level clinical viability. And so 
um, that kind of began some of the work that we wanted to still understand um, kind of complex motor systems, something like locomotion or gait that uh, is a fairly complex motor task relative to something um, like a, a simple reaction time or standing task or something like that. And mm -hmm. so from there, you know, we kind of transitioned into, okay, maybe there's some, some ways that we can measure in a clinic using portable sensors. Um, so there's some commercially available products that, you know, you can measure gate speed and, and things like that. Um, the, the interesting thing from there was, well, we can still kind of identify that there are these persistent deficits in your ability to walk and particularly when you walk and think at the same time. Um, so you ask somebody to walk and subtract by sevens, for example, you start to see, um, some, some destabilizing effects on gait. And, uh, from there we kind of, you know, we're working with kind of the tools that we had and one of the tests that was available um, as a part of the SCAT-3, actually, with the tandem gait test. And so um, over the last couple of years, myself and, and several other uh, athletic training researchers across the country have started implementing this sort of approach uh, into our studies. And, uh, you know, as a result of that, we've kind of understood that, you know, there may actually be some value to this, and, and the test is fairly simple to administer, uh, more so than something like Emotion Analysis Laboratory. But... Uh, it, it probably gives us a little bit better idea of how somebody's able to, to move, how, how their motor system is functioning than some of the, you know, like a, a computerized cognitive test. It's, it's a very good test, and I think it's a, it should be a part of the standard clinical care, but it doesn't fully encompass everything with concussion. And if you think about uh, what the, uh, especially our athletes are subjected to, we should test them in a way that they're going to be uh, tested, quote unquote, um, on the field. And so what do you have to do on the field? You have to move. There's a dynamic movement uh, element to that. And rarely are you ever going to just move or just think. So the dual task part of that allows people to, uh, or allows clinicians, athletic trainers to identify how somebody is doing both things simultaneously. So you can test motor function, you know, using a tandem gait test. You can test cognitive function in a lot of ways, but how do we integrate those two things to perhaps um, or closely reflect the sport-specific demands uh, of athletes. And so that led us to, to then implementing this sort of uh, technique and test um, throughout uh, a lot of our different studies, and, and we've seen uh, a lot of benefit to it. Great. Well, one of the questions we're already getting from the audience is um, very much related. And we have an audience member who's at a high school, has limited resources, and they want to know what's the easiest way to implement dual task and tandem gate or and kind of combine them together into a tandem date dual task in the clinical setting. Yeah, so that's a good question. And, and um, uh, thanks to my, my clinical team here at Children's Colorado, uh, led by Dr. Julie Wilson, who's uh, one of our concussion specialists, um, we've actually been able to implement this in all of our clinics where we see concussion patients, um, both acutely after injury, um, all the way through return to play. <clears throat> so we're doing this system at, uh, kind of system-wide at all of our locations. Um, our, our athletic trainers that are the, at our high schools are doing it. Um, and it's, again, it's, it's fairly simple. It's fairly easy. Uh, and uh, again, it's within the kind of scope, I would say, of what an athletic trainer is capable of doing. Um, the way that we've approached it is, uh, uh, I think what the SCAT-5 actually recommends is that you put a strip of tape down on the ground. Um, <laughs> what we've discovered is that the, the custodial staff doesn't really like that with tape residue on the, the hospital floors. 
And so we actually bought, uh, well, with Dr. Wilson, uh, went out to Joanne Fabric and bought a strip of uh, about 38 millimeter wide fabric. And uh, it's three meters long. So you kind of have a, uh, a reference tool and then you tape it down. Um, and then you have people, uh, if there's a, an athlete that's concussed, the, the paradigm is fairly simple. Um, you instruct them to walk in a heel toe manner um, along the strip of tape or fabric um, uh, down as fast as they can to the end, kind of get across the end of it, turn around and come back. Um, and the, the main outcome that we've kind of gained value from is the time from uh, the, when they start it to when they complete it. So really all you need outside of um, kind of what you would have, actually, everything's probably in the athletic trainer in that maybe you have a timer or a smartphone or something like that, uh, as well as a strip of tape or, or a piece of fabric that's, you know, five bucks at, at, uh, at the fabric store. And so um, uh, what we were able to do from there is now, so you, sorry, let me back up. So you do, we'll do three trials in the single task. Uh, and then we'll take the average of that. We'll get a single task, kind of how long does it take them to complete without a cognitive task? And then we'll have them walk and subtract numbers by sevens or sixes. We'll have them uh, spell words backwards, like a relatively simple, like five letter word backwards, or say the months in reverse order, starting from a random month. And we'll do three trials of that. We'll take the average of those two. And the advantage to that is there's a little bit of normalization for each individual. So everybody's gonna kind of walk at their own pace. So um, within the SCAT three, I believe, they said uh, 14 seconds is uh, kind of cut off of pass fail. And what we're realizing, there's a study published in the Journal of Athletic Training last year, I believe, by the group at University of Georgia, um, Rob Lionel uh, and, and his group, and uh, found that it was uh, that kind of cutoff was probably not appropriate for the younger age group. And so um, by adding a dual task, you're actually able to compare directly of when somebody is walking and then when they're walking and thinking at the same time. So it's kind of a measure of cognitive reserve. And what we're able to see is, you know, okay, it takes you 15 seconds uh, in a single task condition on average to complete the test and 20 seconds on average uh, to complete the dual task and uh, condition of the test. You can kind of calculate the percent difference and get a dual task cost and um, kind of get an estimation of how somebody's doing uh, uh, relative to themselves. If you've done a baseline test and we're working on ways to develop normative data sets as well so that they, you can kind of place those values in context. Because I think one of the challenges where we're at right now is we started implementing this here and some of the athletic trainers would come to me and say, well, you know, somebody somebody completed the test in, in 16 seconds. What does that mean? Right. And I think within an individual, it, it uh, is worthwhile to track their progress over time. I think quantitatively, if you have somebody do it, there's, there's an element of clinical judgment that somebody could say, you know, I'm looking at you and you're, you're completely unstable when I'm asking you to walk and think at the same time, what's going to happen when I put you back into sport. And I don't think it's ever going to be a end all be all the test by any means. I think it's a, it's a, perhaps a, an augmentative clinical tool that might measure something that you're not currently measured uh, within the context of also doing an ocular exam and maybe a best exam and a cognitive exam and a symptom score. All of that, I think, can paint a picture, and this is kind of one piece with that. So you're really looking to see how they change from the single task to the dual task if you don't have a baseline. Yeah, and, and again, I don't have a uh, – we're, we're still fairly early on in this. Um, I don't have a firm answer of, you know, this is uh, uh, what, you know, 4% change versus a 10% change. Right. means. But that's one thing that we're interested in understanding 
And I do think that there's probably some value in just taking a, you know, how long did it take you to do this test? Did it take you 30 seconds to get down and back? We've had some kids come in that are, you know, maybe seven days post-injury and it's taking them almost a full minute to complete it. Uh, and, you know, you think you, you really just have to walk six meters. It's, you know, three meters down, three meters back, but they're unable to really uh, accommodate for both of those things. And, and you see that they're, um, they're really struggling to just put one foot of it in front of the other. And I think it reflects kind of where they're at right in that moment. Um, and then some of the other things we're looking at is, you know, is there a potential prognostic value to it? Um, we're fairly early on uh, in that research, but uh, we have some promising kind of early results, I would say, nothing that we've published yet, um, but will hopefully be forthcoming in the next year um, to, to identify if you do this test, you know, maybe three, four days post-injury and there's certain thresholds that we can identify, is there actually some value in saying, well, maybe you're one of those people that's at risk of uh, developing persistent symptoms. Um, so more to come on that, but that's certainly what we're, we're looking at. Great. Another thing that we have an audience member ask about is how can tandem gait help us understand the athlete's injury or re-injury risk after return to play following concussion? That's a really good question. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, maybe to step back a little bit for those that maybe don't follow the concussion literature as closely as I do. Uh, so what we're realizing right now is that uh, a lot of epidemiological evidence from youth athletes all the way through professional athletes has shown that when you get a concussion and you go through the normal clinical care uh, and you have been documented clinically to recover, they send you back out to sports. Over that next year, you're at a higher risk of sustaining a, a subsequent lower extremity musculoskeletal injury is kind of the, the primary area that the, the research is focused on. And uh, there's probably a lot of different approaches that we can take. Um, one of the theories that uh, we've kind of been operating under, and, and there's several valid theories that are out there, but perhaps our clinical tools aren't equipped to identify whether or not somebody is, is uh, fully recovered in their ability uh, to uh, control their neuromuscular system, their tensional system, uh, and safely execute kind of motor tasks. And, you know, kind of an example would be, uh, you know, if there's a, a lingering deficit that we're not testing for it you know some there's a football player running across the field and he doesn't isn't able to react to uh, a leg sticking mm -hmm. out and he trips over it and ends up you know separating or uh, uh, rolling his ankle or you know falling over it getting a, a, a you know some sort of strain or something like that uh, perhaps there's a way that we can test for it and <clears throat> I don't think that our clinical tools that we have right now uh, again kind of the, the standard clinical approach are able to successfully uh, screen for that. And um, I, I won't give away anything, but I, I know that there's some some data that exists that will hopefully be published soon uh, uh, that I'm not a part of, but I've, I've kind of been aware of that, that really suggests that the current clinical tools aren't successful at uh, predicting um, these sorts of injuries. So can we implement more complex motor tasks that are more reflective of sport-specific movements uh, and combine mm -hmm. them with cognitive tasks? And again, this is one paradigm of potentially several. And, uh, and we think that, that this might actually give us some prognostic value, not only for concussion recovery, symptom recovery, but also for uh, kind of long-term, you know, are you still able to uh, complete two tasks at once? Does that then relate to your ability to 
uh, avoid further injury, but more to come on that. We're still early days here, so I don't want to promise anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely an emerging area of research, that's for sure. So moving on to another area of expertise that you have is um, pediatric concussions, particularly. So how do concussion symptoms and evaluations differ between adults and children, adolescents, pediatrics? Are the outcomes similar? Yeah, so uh, it, it kind of depends on how you define pediatric, adolescent, child. They're, they're sometimes used interchangeably. Um, we've done some uh, kind of multi-site work looking at different symptom profiles across uh, different age groups uh, and finding that uh, the way that people present and the kind of the most common symptoms that maybe a eight-year-old will complain of versus a 15-year-old versus a 20-year-old are probably different by groups. Um, different groups of symptoms probably have different levels of predictive value. Right. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with the scale that you assess symptoms with. Um, part of the problem, uh, problem maybe a little bit stronger word, but difficulty, challenge, uh, especially in research is uh, there's so many different symptom scales. What do we use, right? And so I think that there's the, the SCAT symptom scale, the PCSS, uh, that has the child SCAT, which is up to 12 years of, of age. Um, there's kind of a uh, adjusted set of questions, and rather than a zero to six scale, it's a zero to three scale. Um, there's also the post-concussion symptom in inventory, which uh, is similar, has been validated down, I think, as young as five years of age. And uh, so I do think for that younger age group, those five to 12-year-olds especially, we, we need to consider them that they can't answer the same types of questions. They might not know what, uh, you know, how severe is your nausea at this point, for example. They might not be able to perceive that. They might give you a different response. Um, and then uh, actually another study that we have, I think, forthcoming in the Journal of Athletic Training that's been accepted, um, looks at the agreement between patients and their parents and seeing that actually children, the younger kids, tend to agree with their parents if you assess them separately on symptoms better than adolescents. And, um, you know, we have kind of some conclusions from there, but we do need to treat all these age groups quite differently, both in our assessment of symptoms, but then uh, long-term uh, as far as just how we treat the individual. We, you know, we can't treat a 13-year-old the same way that we would treat a 25-year-old. So what would your immediate um, take-home message be for somebody who wants to modify their clinical practice, they're working with a pediatric or adolescent population, what are some immediate steps? Add the, change the symptom checklist you're using, potentially. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I would look into it, you know, what, what makes sense in your practice, whether it's, you know, the three I think most common in this area are the, the HBI, behavioral inventory, um, the PCSI and the PCSS and, and kind of look through what those questions look like and what makes the most sense to you. Because as a clinician, uh, I think that you need to be able to explain to people, what are we actually asking you if there's any sort of ambiguity, but realizing that there are some uh, uh, scales that are adaptable for that younger age group that are probably more appropriate than, than them. And people that are way smarter than me that have developed these things uh, in order to uh, really hone in on that population um, and kind of using some of the work that, that they have done. I think that, you know, it's, it's going to be up to you individually uh, and what makes the most sense within your clinical practice. But I would definitely look into those uh, uh, specifically for that younger age group. What about immediate treatment? So past the evaluation, now in that immediate treatment phase, differences between pediatric, adolescent, and adult. Yeah, so a lot of the, you know, kind of, 
I would say the way that we've moved, you know, with the latest Berlin guidelines uh, is that after that 24 to 48 hour period of rest, uh, we don't want people to sit in a dark room by themselves. Uh, the kind of this cocoon therapy has kind of gone away. Uh, hopefully in most settings, you know, we still hear about it happening, but I think it's a lot, a lot less prevalent. And it, it makes perfect sense that uh, if you take, a, especially a high school kid and you remove them from all their normal activities, then uh, they're going to get the same symptoms as a concussion, even without a concussion. Mm -hmm. They're going to be irritable, they're going to have trouble sleeping, you know, all those kinds of things. Uh, I think as far as treatment goes, so if we want to talk about active rehabilitation, the, the things that drive those people, uh, uh, you know, what are their motivations for getting back might be quite different between an adolescent and an adult population. For instance, uh, you know, a lot of the, the research that we've seen uh, shows that, you know, these uh, high school kids, one of the things that um, stresses them out is schoolwork. You know, they've got SATs coming up and uh, college attendance and they're worried about falling behind. Um, that's a very different type of uh, approach than somebody that maybe uh, is an adult and wants to get back to work or maybe they don't want to get back to work. So treating those like kind of that initial, what, what are you trying to get back to? Obviously sports is another part and very relevant to our population. Mm -hmm. uh, but within treatment, um, you know, I think there's some really good work coming out uh, from multiple centers. I think championed by, by John Letty at the university of Buffalo looking at early uh, uh, kind of sub threshold, sub symptom threshold activity where we have uh, people exercise to a point where they're uh, uh, symptomatic. And then we kind of recommend that they do a, um, you know, exercise routine that's a little bit below that. Uh, and, you know, that a lot of that work has been done in children specifically uh, or adolescents at least. Um, so uh, as far as, you know, the, the specific, um, differences, I, again, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to vary from setting to setting, but getting to know what the goal of the, of the patient is and trying to match that. Uh, I, I think exercise early on is probably pretty safe to do as long as you don't exceed some of those things, uh, so, uh, symptoms, and you know, try to make them a lot worse. Uh, mm -hmm. But beyond that, I think, again, we're, as far as like, you know, physical therapy, uh, you know, different types of uh, manipulations and looking at neck pain and all that kind of stuff. I think there's some strong research, research in that area that's primarily been in adults. So is there anything that's commonplace in adults that we should not be doing that's not appropriate for pediatrics? Oh, that's a good question. Kind of um, different, but. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, nothing I think comes to mind. I, you know, I, I, I say that, you know, we kind of need to uh, approach them in a similar fashion, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or sorry, in a, in a different fashion. We can't let them, we can't treat children like little adults. Um, and I think a lot of that goes down, it goes into, um, you know, what's happening uh, during adolescence and that, that rapid neurodevelopment, I think, is something that we really need to uh, take care of. Uh, I think that it's likely that adults might recover a little bit faster than adolescents, and that's probably because... Uh, probably due to a lot of different things, but um, to be able to to compensate for this the time of rapid neurological development um, takes a lot of uh, effort. And so I think that that's something that we definitely need to be uh, acutely aware of. And uh, the kind of the pressures on these different age groups and what their population is, obviously there's different uh, from a professional to a high school athlete, but, but putting things in the context of you know, if you don't report your concussion and you try to keep playing through it, 
you know, we know that you're going to probably have a more severe injury. It's going to take you longer to recover. And a lot of that education work um, has been focused both on the collegiate, but then also on the high school population. Um, again, people that are within our athletic training community are working on that aspect um, and have done some brilliant work um, and trying to, to understand what the motivations are for, for each different group is, I think, very important, too. So you're leading right into the audience questions wonderfully. One of the things that um, somebody's asking is, how would you approach parents and adolescents with conversations related to the potential long-term repercussions of a con- of a concussion? This is coming from our Facebook page. Yeah. So I think it's a, it's a valuable conversation to have. I think that, again, we're, I've said this a few times, we're still in the, the early stages of understanding um, uh, the seriousness of concussion. I think a lot of the early research on concussion came from college athletes. And as I've said, that's not the same as high school athletes, both in um, their, their body maturity as well as their uh, uh, you know, cognitive maturity, their, their developmental processes and things like that. Um, I think that there's probably a balance, right? And, and we've seen the pendulum swing over the last two decades quite a bit where uh, concussions aren't, uh, you know, oh, you got one, just keep playing anymore, right? That was maybe 20, 30 years ago. Uh, a lot of people kind of adapted that. Um, you know, perhaps the pendulum can swing to a point where now if you get a concussion, that's a life sentence to, uh, you know, you're in trouble, you're never going to recover, you have, you're sentenced to a life of, uh, you know, dark depression and, and despair. Um, obviously, you know, if that was the case, then then everybody who ever got a concussion would, would not be doing anything uh, successfully. So um, I think the, the conversations that, that happen between clinicians and, uh, uh, and patients and parents has to be an honest one about what we know and what we do not know. Um, and understanding that that one concussion that you suffer, um, you know, as a, as a high school athlete, uh, you know, if you're a cheerleader, for example, uh, you know, that's probably a, a lot different than, uh, you know, somebody who's suffered 15 or 20 uh, by that stage in life. Uh, and and trying to understand, you know, especially in those people that have more fear, maybe if they've had several concussions and what those kind of red flags are. Obviously, we know that there's not a, a single number where we say, OK, well, now you've had three concussions. That means uh, you, you can never play any sort of sport again. Uh, that, that's not the approach that, that I would recommend. Um, but looking for those kind of warning signs of, you know, are concussions happening with greater frequency? Are they happening in, you know, the first two that you had happened a year apart and then the next one was six months and the next one was three months or uh, the, the, uh, the magnitude that's required to cause a concussion. So the first one was a big one. And then the next one, you know, you were vacuuming and you stood up and hit your head and that gave you a concussion, you know, those kinds of things. Um, perhaps there's a vulnerability, uh, you know, and, and perhaps there's something in your playing style that's, that's making you predispose to that. I think those types of questions and trying to understand, uh, why are they happening? Why are they perhaps getting worse? You know, and, and the other thing I think is is the duration it takes you to recover from each one. So the first one took you a, a week, and then you had another one it took you a month, and then another one took you three months. Trying to uncover why that's happening uh, and and make recommendations based on those types of conversations. So really having an open dialogue. Yeah, I, I, and you know the the physicians that that I am uh, able to work with, you know, uh, they're. I see it firsthand every day. They're, they're brilliant in that the, the conversations are um, very two-way, very open. Ask me questions. I'll be very honest with you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, there's no kind of uh, uh, 
beating around the bush, but then there's also no like fear mongering that this is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And it's going to take you five years before you're all the way better kind of a thing. Yeah. Trying to understand that balance, I think is, is very important at this juncture. So we have another Facebook question for you. Since your work has shown the 5P prediction rule is useful in a sports medicine setting, what are the greatest takeaways for clinicians when considering using this tool? Yeah, so for those people that don't know, so the 5P tool is it was developed by um, a group of physicians in Canada in the emergency room um, led by Roger Zemeck. And it is uh, the way that they did it, I think, was brilliant. And if you want to look up the study, uh, it's, it's published in JAMA. And it's, it's a very well-done study in that they uh, took as many clinical measurements as they could think of uh, at the time of injury and uh, kind of developed this risk score and then validated it in a separate cohort of people. So a really rigorous study design. And what they found was of all these different measurements that you take within the acute kind of first 48 hours of their injury, there are nine variables uh, that kind of predict whether or not somebody is going to go on and have persistent symptoms. So symptoms lasting for more than 28 days post-injury. And um, there was a score that was developed out of that. And um, I won't be able to recite them all off the top of my head, but things like um, age group, uh, sex, concussion history, and then specific symptoms like fatigue, headache. Uh, and then uh, there's one kind of balance aspect uh, where you have to do the tandem stance uh, of the best. So you stand with your kind of feet like that for, yeah. uh, for 20 seconds. You count the number of errors they get. From that, you can derive a specific risk score and stratify people based on kind of what they score on that. And so if somebody scores, for example, a nine to 12, that means they're at a very high risk of sustaining a concussion, or excuse me, a, a prolonged concussion symptom duration. And so uh, what we've been able to kind of replicate that in the sports medicine setting um, and found that that same tool was, was pretty worthwhile, but again, it was kind of a retrospective study. Um, we're hoping to kind of launch a couple of different projects related to this. Um, I think that the, the, the biggest takeaway for me at this point is if we can identify those people early on that are the most likely to be showing up, you know, two months later in these complex concussion clinics, um, and we can find treatment pathways for them earlier on, um, even if that's like a structured exercise program, some education, um, and, you know, maybe, you know, seeing a physical therapist or, or an athletic trainer that, that somebody is... Uh, at least helping kind of counsel and talk them through that, okay, maybe you're at a higher risk of, of these persistent symptoms. What can we do about that at this point? Um, I think that the, the tool itself is very, it was intentionally designed to uh, be simple for any clinician to do. And, um, you know, we've done a little bit of that in our clinics, but I think most athletic trainers um, in their setting, if they see a kid, you know, a day or two post-injury, um, they could implement this in, in five minutes or so. Um, a lot of the symptom questions are already asking about a lot of the demographics and background information they're already asking about. So it's just a couple additional things that are fairly straightforward to screen for. And again, I would, you know, at this point, it's still a screening tool. It's not, you know, oh, you get a 12 on this, you're 100% going to go on and get uh, persistent symptoms. But it's at least a tool to recognize who's at risk for that and perhaps get them into treatment sooner. Great. Thank you. So a few really good immediate take home, um, change your clinical practice tips. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so just to kind of wrap it up, what are you most excited about with this evolving area of concussion research? 
Yeah, there's uh, there's there's so much I think um, excitement, uh, you know, from a research perspective, uh, particularly in the population that I work with, uh, which is pediatric and adolescents. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, a lot of our initial research happened on college campuses, as it as it often does, and uh, as a result of that, you know, we know a lot about college athletes. The, the adolescent athlete, and especially the younger. Um, you know, 12 and under, we don't know a whole lot about. So that's one thing that I'm really excited about learning more is, you know, how do we treat these kids and, you know, beyond symptoms, um, what sorts of tests are better for the younger kids than, than the older kids? Uh, and, and what are the factors that predispose them to these, these prolonged recoveries? Um, the other kind of really exciting thing uh, as a researcher and somebody who has an interest in biomechanics and, and neurophysiology is the advancement in technology. Uh, I think that, uh, while we're kind of still developing a lot of ways to assess uh, a lot of different things, uh, it's good that in that there's there's uh, kind of more ubiquity, right? So we can use things, you know, we're working on some ways. I, I kind of mentioned that, you know, we're, we're testing um, GATE, but we're working on ways that, okay, how do you actually, you know, instrument that without a huge demand? Can you use your smartphone, for example? There's some highly sophisticated tools in your pocket right now. Um, and so we've got some, some funding to, to get going on some of those types of projects. Um, I'm also working with some colleagues um, that are brilliant neuroimaging specialists, and they're, they're leading the way on understanding, um, you know, what sorts of uh, signatures can we identify in the brain after concussion. And beyond that, you know, we can find these microstructural or neurochemical changes, but how does that then correlate with some of these functional tests that we talked about? Um, and then how does that impact clinical care? And then at the same time, you know, until we have a firm understanding of what our therapeutic targets should be, uh, we really can't administer therapy without with, with a complete understanding of what's changing. And so identifying, uh, you know, specific centers or, or chemicals or, you know, whatever it is, uh, being able to say, okay, there's a change here, this correlates with something bad uh, or some sort of poor outcome. Now, how do we implement some sort of change uh, in our rehabilitation to actually target that area. Um, and, and then I think the other thing that's really exciting about, you know, technology uh, now is that it enables us to work in a multi-site fashion. I'm, I'm working, I'm very fortunate to work with uh, colleagues uh, across the country and actually all over the world um, on different projects that, that we're able to kind of enact the same type of systematic approach, um, conglomerate data in a way that's systematic and, uh, and it's able to uh, be synchronized across sites. And then we get information about not just uh, you know, high school kids in the greater Denver area, mm -hmm. but you know, a, a geographically and hopefully ethnically and uh, everything diverse population. Uh, and, and then you know, from there, the, the long-term, and I usually say this in most of my talks, is that my, my goal is to put tools in, hand, in the hands of athletic trainers that don't have the resources that somebody uh, at a large medical institution like me has <clears throat> understanding the processes behind that. But then, you know, that, that high school athletic trainer that has a pretty small budget uh, and not a lot of space and oversees care for 3000 kids, you know, how do we actually equip them to, to really truly understand uh, what's happening after concussion and uh, make the right decisions. So um, all of those things I think work hand in hand, but that's, that's definitely what we're working to 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 accomplish uh, in the years coming forward. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining us today. Um
And again, your work is available online first at JT. Um, please feel free to go on and read it. It's a wonderful read. We didn't get a chance to go into it too much today, but you gave us some wonderful take-home, um, immediately implementable uh, clinical resources. So thank you again so much, Dr. Howell. And yeah, thank, you. thank you everyone for joining us on Chat Chat.